than 20 who have gathered together after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're all a little bit confused as to what's supposed to happen next. And Peter stands up as the leader and gives direction. And, and when you think about what's happened before that, you might be a little surprised that Peter is the one standing up and giving direction. Just rewind the tape a little bit. Do you remember how uh, Peter denied Jesus multiple times just before his death, right when he was on trial, right at the moment, you know, when he maybe should have been the most supportive? And this is Peter, right, the, one of the primary apostles, and, he, and he, he, he's embarrassed. He denies Jesus in that moment. And, and, and you think, you might want to think, Wow, that's kind of the end of his witness. That's the end of, of, of his serving the Lord because he's messed up. He's, he's made a mistake. He's, he's failed. And I don't know if you've ever experienced a moment like that before, or maybe you have, where you felt like somehow you have removed yourself from being useful to God. Right? I shared a few weeks back, just when I was getting back from sabbatical, and I, I was... Uh, sharing with you all the lessons learned on sabbatical about a, a moment in time, uh, maybe within the last couple of years, and uh, a moment in time when, um, you know, I felt like I was disqualified. I had been sort of uh, weakened by some hard things that have happened, both in ministry and in my personal life, and I was working too hard, and it all kind of boiled to this one Sunday morning when I got up. And I said to my wife, you know what, I just can't, I can't go. And I was supposed to preach. Uh, and so she called over some of the guys and they came over and it was seven in the morning and we're sitting around my kitchen counter and we're talking through kind of where I'm at with everything. And, and, and in that processing, I, I sensed the lifting of sort of the burden that I'd been carrying and was able to, to carry through. And then, of course, you all were so gracious to send me on this sabbatical during which God did some incredible renewing and refreshing and just resting that I really needed. Uh, and I'm just wondering if some of us have felt that way from time to time. Maybe we've been beaten up or maybe we have done something that makes us to feel like we're just no longer useful to God. And this morning we're going to be uh, looking at a, a story in the book of Acts that I hope and pray will be an encouragement to you if that's where you're at. And for those of you who who maybe um, are considering or are thinking about Jesus, about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and, and maybe this doesn't fully ap apply to you in, in the moment yet, uh, this will be a window for you to see the beautiful way, way in which God relates, when Jesus relates to his disciples. It'll give you a sense of who he really is. So, so look at it through that lens. Would you open with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 15? And if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to raise your hand and we'll pass one to you. Please don't be shy about that. We'd love for you to be able to, to read along and, um, and, and see the text that we're going to be looking at. It's on page 600 and 400 and, oops, it disappeared. 626, thank you. Page 626, there we go. Uh, great, page 626, it's going to be Acts 1 verse 15. Now, I'm going to be reading again this morning from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, but the elders and I had a conversation the other night, and they said to me, you either have to change all the Bibles or preach from the same Bible that we hand out. I said, okay. 
So I was starting next week, I'll be preaching again from the ESV. So I apologize um, for some of the wording being a little different, um, and I just haven't come to the point of really deciding whether we're going to stick with this version or with the, the other version. Um, the differences are subtle, so it's not like an undermining thing. But, um, but this week I was already into the text in this version, so I got to stick with it. Uh, but next time we'll be in the ESV, uh, all of us together. So uh, let, me, let me begin here in chapter uh, 1, verse 15. In those days, this is what I was saying about Peter, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120. And he said, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man, referring to Judas, acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell head first, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field is called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, that's Psalm 69, and let someone else take his position, that's from Psalm 109. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice and and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's heart. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Now, we don't know what happened to Matthias uh, much afterwards, but tradition has it, not scripture, but tradition has it that he ended up being the apostle to the Ethiopians. So, and there is a a strong Ethiopian church even to this day. And so uh, perhaps that's how he was used uh, later on. Now, the point that I want to circle around and kind of reinforce today is this idea of thinking through life and how do we think through, in particular, our ministry life, that is, the, the, the life of service to God. How do we think through that well? But I would just put, I put it in parentheses because um, it really has to do with all of life. It really has to do with all of life. So how do we think about ministry life? But it really has to do with, with all of life, and you'll see some of those connections. And what I would like to say is um, that we're going we're gonna to be encouraged by this text to process life through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of grace. Through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of grace. Those will be the two points we're going to be circling in on. So let's start with the first one. Peter justifies everything that he does in this text by rooting it in Scripture. Another way to say this is that he processes the present moment through the lens of Scripture. He processes the present moment through the lens of Scripture. And this is is what I would say is a very powerful principle for all of life, to, to process life through the lens of Scripture. 
And it might seem a little odd how he does this. He goes to what would maybe seem like random Psalms 69 and 109, and he pulls these, these short little quotes out of them. Let his dwelling become desolate there in verse, verse 20. Let no one live in it. And then from the other Psalm, let someone else take his position. And, and one of the things that I'll remind us of is that when the New Testament is quoting texts from the Old Testament, what oftentimes is intended is that we would go back and read the entire text and see how it fits in. If you just take the one little quote, sometimes it seems a little bit random or a little bit odd. And if we were to do that with these Psalms, we'd go back and we would see that these are Psalms about the suffering of God's anointed one. And so all the things that apply to God's anointed in the Old Testament, who you know, would have been in, its, in his greatest form, King David, now applies to the, Jesus, the Messiah, in the New Testament. And so they're reading the Old Testament with eyes to the present moment and to give them an understanding of what's happening. And in those Psalms about the suffering of the anointed, they talk about those who are persecuting the anointed one. And so what Peter is doing is he's applying that to Judas because Judas is the one who has persecuted God's anointed one. And you wonder, how did they, you know, who turned them on to this whole idea of going back and reading those Psalms with an eye to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And, and if we're following the thread, the telling of Luke, we conclude that it must have been Luke, it must have been Jesus himself, excuse me, who turned them on to this kind of way of processing the present moment through the Scriptures. Because if we turn back over to the Gospel of Luke, remind you that after Jesus had risen, he appeared to two disciples. Do you remember this story? They were walking on their way to Emmaus. And as they were walking, we read this about what happened. Um, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, and that's Jesus, interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the resurrected Jesus teaches the disciples to view life and the ministry that they're a part of through the lens of scripture. And that's likely how they came to circle around this Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. In fact, Psalm 69 especially is quoted all throughout the New Testament. So something about the early church really had a deep understanding of Psalm 69 as being an interpretive key for the suffering of Jesus Christ. Now, um, the scriptures then become, in this way, a kind of like a set of glasses for us to put on. This is something that Calvin first said, and it's a metaphor for for the purpose of scripture that it's really hard to improve upon. So we talk about general revelation, that's the creation the world that God made, and special revelation, which is God's word, the scripture, and then, of course, most fully, the person of Jesus Christ, who is the the word of God. And so we put on the glasses of special revelation to be able to understand the general revelation. Now, um, like all of us, I'm getting older. And um, recently, I noticed a problem with my eyesight. Actually, it took me a long time to realize what was happening. I kept wanting to turn on more lights. 
and I could never have enough lights on when I wanted to read or, or study. And in the office, it was a problem. I kept buying more lights and putting them on my desk. Uh, and then finally, I knew something was wrong when I was away on the sabbatical. I was in my cabin, and I would turn the light on. And, and granted, it was not very bright, but I couldn't read. I couldn't read. Uh, and so I, I spent basically the whole week with a little miner's lamp on to just try to read my Bible. And I started to wonder, well, maybe my eyesight is, is going. That happened to my brother. He's a little bit older than me. Uh, and so I go, I'm in, the, I'm in the CVS, and I go to the little reading glasses section. I thought, well, I'll start at the bottom with the least magnification. And I put it on, and I look at the sign, and all of a sudden it says, reading glasses, clear as day. And I take them off, and it's just, you know, cloudy. I can hardly read it. Uh, and so I realized that my vision, my vision was decaying, and I needed those glasses. And so Soon, I'll probably even be preaching with little reading glasses on. Uh, I'm able so far to, to follow along. Uh, but I need those glasses to be able to see clearly what I'm looking at. And, and this is the imagery that Calvin has given to us about the Scripture, that, that the Scripture is like a pair of glasses that help us to put into focus what's happening around us. In fact, there's a little gem in this text, an example of how that happens. Um, notice the decision process that Peter leads the community through in order to make a decision about who will take the place. Now, there, there had to be 12. You go back, 12 is an important number all throughout. And so Jesus established the 12, as he calls them. And so there had to be 12. And they have to decide who are they going to bring. And look at what they do in this decision process. First of all, they consult Scripture. Then they use common sense. We, you know, if we're going to find somebody to be a witness, to be an apostle, they probably should have been a witness throughout the beginning of Jesus' life until the end. So common sense. And then they pray. And then they cast lots. Now, that's a decision process, right? And when we're reading the scripture, you're in your morning time and you're thinking, Lord, give me something that I can use for my life today. And you're reading through, and you see that there is this process of decision-making that maybe you can use some of it. Now, this is going to put us into an interesting uh, dynamic in the book of Acts that uh, we have to kind of wrestle through. We're going to have to wrestle through it many, many times. And that has to do with this whole casting lots thing. Now, the first three, we would find reaffirmations of those principles all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New that consulting scripture is a good way to make decisions, that people use common sense, and of course, they pray to be able to make decisions. Interestingly, however, we don't see after this moment anybody ever again casting lots. Now, the casting lots is talked about in the book of Proverbs, and it was, it, was a, it was a way in the Old Testament that people would make decisions, and they believed that when they did cast the lots after those other elements were done, that God would be in that decision. And I don't think it's any coincidence that right after this text, the very next text that's going to be next Sunday, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people. Now, what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? One of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to give guidance to the people of God. And we don't see, after this moment in the New Testament, anybody ever casting lots again after the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the people of God. So here's what we would probably say. Uh, about this text. We'd say that the first three are prescriptive. 
meaning they, that, that in them, God is prescribing a way that we ought to live also. And the fourth one is descriptive, meaning that Luke is just simply telling us this is how it happened. He's describing. Now, the prescriptive versus descriptive question is going to come up many times in the book of Acts. Is what is being said here prescribed for us also, or is it just described as what actually happened? And there are ways that we're going to have to kind of wrestle through that. One of them being what I did this morning, which is those first three are reaffirmed throughout the rest of Scripture. And so we can be confident that not only is it descriptive, it's also prescriptive. Whereas the last one I explained never appears again. So then we would say that's just descriptive. But you get there, right? This is a little gem in the text. If you, if you were to get up in the morning and, and, and put on the glasses of Scripture and you're going into your day, does anybody have to make any decisions in a day? Yes. I mean, that's mostly what life is, is so much about. And here you've got a, a little gem of how, and what a great reminder. Later on in the day, you're making an important decision and you just write down these three things. What does the Bible say about it? You know, what is common sense? And then you take some time to pray before you make the decision. This is what it means to process life through the lens of Scripture. And it's a gift to us. And I want to encourage us to do it all the more. One of the areas where I think God did some work in me over the sabbatical was to encourage me to give more time to the processing. So if you ever get up in the morning or whenever you like to read, and you start reading, and your mind is so distracted that you can't concentrate. And you have to read the same verses like 15 times. And after the 15th time, you still weren't paying attention to what you were reading because you're so distracted. And, 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 and then you just finally give up in frustration. And you say, OK, I'll try again tomorrow. Now, that's part of life, right? We're, we're frail human beings. We don't always have the level of concentration. But one of the things that helps us is to just accommodate to the fact accommodate ourselves to the reality, we need time and we need, we need calmness and we need space to be able to absorb the word of God. I have been going to bed earlier because I have found that when I get up earlier, before the day starts, I'm not as stressed and anxious when I approach the scripture and I have more space to actually sit with it and hear it, and I'm not waiting to get on to the next thing. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for you? And maybe you're a night person, and so this whole thing gets flipped to the evening, and maybe you stay up later and get up later. I, 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 whatever. But somehow to create space where you can actually sit with the Word of God and let it absorb into you. That's what it means. That's what we're doing. We're putting on the lens of Scripture to help us to process life. And the amazing thing is we discover how much God wants to be intimately involved with all the nuances of our lives. We read a passage, and later on in the day, we, we note that it was exactly what we needed for this day. And what a loss it would have been had we just gotten up and, and not taken time to put on the, the glasses of Scripture to process life. Now, this becomes critical for life and for ministry, for everything that we're doing. 
And this is the first point that we can remove, we can take out of this text. The second one has to do with grace, processing life through the lens of grace. And you've got two apostles here with very different outcomes. There's Peter who ends up at the end of this whole thing standing up before everybody else, leading and, and kind of guiding the proceedings. He's, he's, he's back in ministry after having failed miserably in denying Jesus Christ. And then you've got this very painful story of Judas who is now dead. So there's Peter standing up and Judas is dead. Let's take Judas First, Judas, you remember, betrayed Jesus to the authorities, likely aware that they wanted to kill Jesus. And I think this is an important point when we think about Judas. Uh, when Jesus was then finally condemned, uh, Jude, Jesus was finally condemned, Judas was filled with remorse. And he, he, at that moment, he did not go back to Jesus, but he ended up taking his own life, uh, essentially sealing his fate. Now, the question that often comes uh, as we sit with the story of Judas, and, and I don't know that we're ever going to have an, a, 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 a sufficient answer for this, so don't get your hopes up too much here. But the question that we often have is, is could, could, Judas, why, could Judas have repented, right? And, and why didn't he, and, and kind of what happened there? And I think as I've been pondering this and reading a little bit about it this week, The real question is not could he have repented, but would he have repented? His actions demonstrate that he did not actually ever come to the point of understanding who Jesus was because he believed that the other authorities were above Jesus. And so he went to them so that they might might do their business with him. And the subtle insight there is that Judas, unlike Peter, didn't actually believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't have that understanding. He didn't go back and seek forgiveness from Jesus, who if he really understood Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed, this means the anointed one of God, you know, sent um, to redeem his people. If he really understood Jesus as that person, then he would have known that Jesus was capable of the kind of forgiveness. So so the great sin of Judas is what we always see in Scripture. The only really unforgivable sin is the denial of Jesus Christ. Because what the Bible teaches is that without Christ, there's not, unfortunately, a way to God because the sin problem can't be dealt with. Jesus is the only person in history who who claims to have dealt with a sin problem and then actually went through the process of, of dying in a way to atone for sin. And then his resurrection is a statement that it was actually effective. And, and we can look around all over and we just don't find anywhere else anybody who deals with that sin problem. And the sin problem is the thing that separates us from God. And that's what we desperately need. And Judas just didn't, he just didn't seem to understand that or, or recognize who Jesus was, even though he'd been with him all of that time. Contrast that with Peter, then. At the same time that all this is happening, Peter is denying Jesus. Um, and so what's the difference? Well, the difference is that Peter believes, and he doesn't stop believing in Jesus as the Messiah throughout it all. You remember that Peter was the one who answered the question when Jesus asked, who, who, who do you say that I am? 
He said, you're the Messiah, right? And so, so Peter understands that. We know Peter understands that. And um, he goes back, and, and how humbling must that have been to go back to Jesus after having denied him. But knowing, and this is sort of the key piece, knowing he had nowhere else to go. There was no other hope but to go back to Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, we have the full articulation of the the restoration of Peter. But in the Gospel of Luke, um, it's a very kind of a a short kind of a thing. Um, It just simply says that... uh, that the, the, the disciples, the Emmaus disciples, after Jesus met them, they go back. It says that the very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, they found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised. Again, the resurrection of Jesus is the confirmation that the sin problem has effectively been overcome. Okay? Um, that he has been raised and has appeared to Simon. That's all it says. But that's enough for us to know that if Jesus appeared to Simon, then forgiveness will have occurred. And of course, we have the full story in the Gospel of John where we get to see Jesus and Peter interacting in in the forgiveness process. But Simon is is forgiven. Peter, Simon is his other name, is forgiven uh, because we know that Jesus revealed himself to him and Simon, of course, responded to Jesus. And so the, the problem with, with, with Peter is not that he doesn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, is, you know, to put it sort of crassly, he's just a bonehead, right? He, out of fear and cowardice, denies what he knows to be true. But he eventually comes back to Jesus to seek forgiveness. So we find these three categories at work. There are those people who are not sure about Jesus, which is actually a reasonable place to be in. And I would imagine that some of us here this morning are in that place, and you're exploring the person of Jesus, and that's wonderful. And we're glad that you have chosen to be with us to make that exploration. And we want to help you in whatever way we might be able to and have you challenge us and help us too. And we want to be in part of that process but that's not really the main point of this today's text. We're going to get into lots of texts throughout the study of Acts that are about who is Jesus. So I hope that you'll keep being a part of this study, and we'll explore that together. So the first category is not sure about Jesus. The second category is sure he is the Messiah, but again, to put it crassly, you're a bonehead. Like Peter. And doing... Stupid things, messing up, failing, sinning, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third category, which we have here in the person of Judas, is you're sure that Jesus is not the Messiah. You're sure that Jesus is not the Messiah. And that's the, that's the more grave category uh, as comes from this text, and it's very tragic. Um, but the good news, even for somebody who finds themselves in that category is that as long as there's breath in our lungs, it's not too late to turn it around, right? And some of you may have loved ones and, and friends who um, are in that place. And, and thank God, it's, God's grace is, is just is so expansive. There's, just, it's, there's still time while there's breath in a person's lungs to reconsider 
who the person of Jesus is. This is heavy stuff right here. I understand that. I want to speak to those of us who are in that category two right now, where you know Jesus is the Messiah, but you're a bonehead. And pretty much anybody who has acknowledged Jesus in faith fits in that category. <laughs> kind of get an amen. I got an amen, right? We're gonna, that's like where we're going to get an amen, because we know that we're all uh, frail, sinful, broken people who continually fall short of what the example is of Jesus Christ. And the good news is the story of Peter. Verse 15. There's Peter. I mean, he denied Jesus of all people and of all moments in time. And yet here he is standing up in front of the people, leading, ministering, witnessing, serving. And if that can happen to Peter, then it can happen to us. God has met Peter in Christ with enough grace and forgiveness to cover over his failures. And that's true of all the Peters who've come after Peter, meaning you and and me. So I'm reading this book by another Peter, Peter Hitchens, who is the brother of Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a very famous book, atheistic book, God is Not Great. Peter Hitchens, I didn't know this, is, is a believer in Jesus Christ and was along, going along this very similar path. He's a journalist. I haven't read the whole book, so I'm not going to say I, you know, it's great or perfect. I don't, know, I, you know, I don't know, but I just read the first part, and I wanted to share with you um, a, 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 something from his life. So, so um, Peter Hitchens um, describes at age 15, burning his Bible in a field near Cambridge. He says this. This is how the book starts. I set fire to my Bible on the playing fields of my Cambridge boarding school one bright, windy spring afternoon in 1967. I was 15 years old. The book did not, as I had hoped, blaze fiercely and swiftly. Only after much blowing and encouragement did I manage to get it to ignite at all and I was left with a disagreeable, half-charred mess. Most of my small, invited audience drifted away long before I had finished, disappointed by the anticlimax and the pettiness of the thing. Thunder did not mutter. It would be many years before I would feel a slight shiver of unease about my act of desecration. Did I then have any idea of the forces I was trifling with? Now, if you feel like you've done some stupid things, that you've been a bonehead, that you've failed, that you've sinned, and that somehow that has removed you from the possibility of serving and ministering with Jesus Christ, I submit this example to you. Somebody who, age 15, is literally burning their Bible in the middle of the field. And yet, because of God's grace, has been turned around, captured and turned around, to be giving witness publicly to the world of the goodness of God. And that's the story we have to live over and over and over again because of who we are and because of God's great 
grace. It is a good story. It is a hallelujah kind of story. And so this morning, if, if some of you are feeling a bit sidelined, I think I'm going to finish with, with a moment of, of maybe allowing God to release us from, from being sidelined by reminding us of his grace. When I was studying, when I was, uh, well, I did study in Madrid, you know, when I was younger, and then I was able to go back uh, on the sabbatical, and there was a painting um, that really spoke to me, and I apologize, I was afraid this would happen. You can't see it very clearly. If you could see it in all of its brightness, this is a, a painting in the 1600s by an anonymous painter in the, the Prado Museum. Thanks, Jason. And um, it's a painting of Peter uh, in the moment when he is, after the, the moments just after he is denied Jesus Christ. And you see sitting next to him the keys, <laughs> just painfully, right? The keys to the kingdom. Peter was, you know, he had the keys to the kingdom. The disciples had the keys to the kingdom. And so the keys are there just like a little, just a little reminder, just a little dig about how bad this is, right? You have this responsibility and you have just failed, you know, in, 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 in standing up for Christ. And, and again, what really struck me, I stood before this painting for quite some time because I was astounded by the way in which the painter captures that moment of sadness. And I show it to you because I think some of us are stuck in that moment right now. It's a very important moment. I tried to buy this, a, a copy of this painting. They're not... I can't, but I would love to be able to hang this near my library and just remember how important this moment, but as important as this moment is, it's also important for us to move through it. And we can because of the person of Jesus Christ. So what I'd like to do in closing this morning is ask everyone to stand up. And as you consider that painting and what we've talked about this morning, I would like to pray a prayer over us of restoration. For those who feel disqualified, for those who feel beaten up, for those who feel um, like, like there's no hope, for those who are stuck in this painting, I'd like to pray for us a prayer of restoration. So God, we come to you this morning as people who have so much in common with Peter, and we ask that by your spirit you might move in powerful ways to bring home the goodness of your grace in our lives today. And so we spend a little bit of time confessing to you like Abraham and Sarah, we have failed to wait on you in life and ministry. Like Jacob, we have strived in self-sufficiency rather than dependency upon you. Like Moses, we have believed that us plus you is still not enough. Also like Moses, we have broken faith with you by failing to treat you as holy before those around us. Like Naomi, we have given in to bitterness over the hardness of life. Like Jonah, we've run away from your call on us. Like Saul, we have taken matters into our own hands when we should have waited for you. Like David, we have not been pure. Like Elijah, we have worked ourselves to the point of uselessness. In the New Testament, like Thomas, we have doubted when the evidence was clear. Like James and John, we have sought our own glory. 
Like Peter, we have failed to stand up for you. Like the three in the garden, we have fallen asleep in the moments we most needed to be awake. And so this morning, restorer of broken servants, we come to you for forgiveness, for healing, for redemption, for restoration, that you might set us back on the path to which you've called us, a path of meaningful service to you, to serve the people in our community here, to serve the people in our home groups, to serve the people in our broader community, in this city and beyond to be your witnesses in all the variated ways that we can do that. And we thank you that you are the restorer of broken servants like Peter, like us. Restore us. Make us to stand among your community, to serve in faith and boldness, not because we're great, but because you are great in us. And we pray that in this community you would release your servants and all their giftedness for ministry. That we'd be astounded by the the kinds of creative ways you release your people to do your bidding. And that through that, stone by stone, each person a living stone, you would build this temple, this church, that you inhabit by your spirit. And that at the end of the day, you would be glorified in all of these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to open the communion table now, and this will be open to all who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if this morning you have needed to be restored, then what a beautiful way um, to seal that restoration as you come to the table and just be reminded of God's expanse of grace over you. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So, Lord, by your words, by your spirit, by the person of Jesus Christ, We seek healing and restoration this morning. We open our hearts to you, and we just say to you, do your work. Fix the things in us that we can't fix. Release the imprisonments we can't break out of, and bring glory to yourself in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing. We're going to be available to pray with you. We're going to open the table for when you're ready to come up. Let's enjoy this time of community together, knowing that the Spirit of God is present with the gathered church. Amen.